On a frosty morning with the little February sun, Clifford and Connie went for a walk across the park to the wood. That is, Clifford chuffed in his motor chair and Connie walked beside mm. him. The air was still sulphurous, but they were both used to it. Round the near horizon went the haze. Um, opalescent, sorry, I know that word, but oh, opalescent, opalescent, sorry. Um, with frost right, and smoke. Opal- it's opalescent, yeah. Opalescent, opalescent, yes. With you said it right. Smoke, yeah, you said it right. Uh, oh, there we go. And on top lay the small blue sky so that it was like being inside an enclosure, always inside. Life always a dream or a frenzy inside an enclosure. The sheep coughed in the rough, sea grass of the park, where frost lay bluish in the sockets of the tufts. Across the park ran a path to the wooden gate, a fine ribbon of pink, with sifted gravel from the pit bank. When the rock and refuse of the underworld had burned and given off its sulphur, it turned bright pink, shrimp-coloured on dry days, darker, crab-coloured on wet. Now it was pale shrimp colour, with a bluish-white hoar of frost. It always pleased Connie, this underfoot of sifted bright pink. It was an ill wind that brings nobody good. Clifford steered cautiously down the slope of the knoll from the hall, and Connie kept her hand on the chair. In front lay the wood, the hazel thicket nearest, the purplish density of oaks beyond. From the wood's edge, rabbits bobbled and nibbled. Rooks suddenly rose in a black train and went trailing off over the little sky. Connie opened the wood gate and Clifford puffed slowingly through into the broad riding that ran up an incline between the clean whipped thicket of hazel. The wood was a remnant of the great forest where Robin Hood hunted and this riding was an old, old thoroughfare coming across country. But now, of course, it was only a riding through the private wood. The road from Mansfield swerved round to the north. In the wood, everything was motionless. The old leaves on the ground, keeping the frost on their underside. A jay called harshly, many little birds fluttered. But there was no game, no pheasants. They had been killed off during the war, and the wood had been left unprotected. Till now, Clifford had got his gamekeeper again. Clifford loved the wood. He loved the old oak trees. He felt they were his own through generations. He wanted to protect them. He wanted this place inviolate, shut off from the world. The chair chuffed slowly up the incline, rocking and jolting on the frozen clods. And suddenly on the left came a clearing where there was nothing but a ravel of dead bracken, a thin and spiny sapling leaning here and there big sawn stumps showing their tops and their grasping roots lifeless and patches of blackness where the woodsman had burned the brushwood and rubbish. This was one of the places that Sir Geoffrey had cut during the war for trench timber. The whole knoll, which rose softly on the right of the riding, was denuded and strangely forlorn. On the crown of the knoll where the oaks had stood now was bareness and from there you could look out over the trees to the colliery railway and the new works at Stack's Gate. Connie had stood and looked. It was a breach in the the pure seclusion of the wood. It let in the world, but she didn't tell Clifford. This denuded place always made Clifford curiously angry. He had been through the war, had seen what it meant, but he didn't get really angry till he saw this bare hill. He was having it replanted, but it made him hate Sir Geoffrey. Clifford sat with a fixed face as the chair slowly mounted. When they came to the top of the rise, he stopped. He would not risk the long and very jolty downslope. He sat looking at the greenish sweep of the riding downwards, a clear way through the bracken and oats. 
He swerved at the bottom of the hill and disappeared. But he had such a lovely easy curve of the knights riding and ladies on palfreys. I consider this is really the heart of England, said Clifford Connie, as he sat there in the dim February sunshine. Do you, she said, seating herself in her blue knitted dress on a stump by the path. I do. This is the England, the heart of it, and I intend to keep it intact. Oh, yes, said Connie. But as she said it, she heard the eleven o'clock booters at Stacksgate Colliery. Clifford was too used to the sound to notice. I want this wood perfect, untouched. I want nobody to trespass in it, said Clifford. There was a certain pathos. The wood still had some of the mystery of the wild, old England, but Sir Godfrey's, Godfrey's cuttings during the war had given it a blow. How still the trees were, with their crinkly, innumerable twigs against the sky, and the grey, obstinate trunks rising from the brown back bracken. How safely the birds flitting among them, and once there had been deer, archers, and monks padding along on asses. The place remembered, still remembered. Clifford sat in the pale sun, with the light of his smooth, rather blonde hair, his reddish full face inscrutable. I mind more not having a son when I come here than any other time, he said. But the wood is older than your family, said Connie gently. Quite, but we've preserved it, except for us it would go. It would be gone already, like the rest of the forest. One must preserve some of old England. Must one, said Connie. If it has to be preserved and preserved against the new England, it's sad, I know. If some of the old England isn't preserved, there'll be no England at all, said Clifford. And we who have this kind of property and the feeling for it, we must preserve it. There was a sad pause. Yes, for a little while, said Connie. For a little while? That's all we can do. We can only do our bit. I feel every man of my family has done his bit here since we've had the place. One may go against convention, but one must keep up tradition. Again, there was a pause. What tradition? asked Connie. The tradition, the tradition of England of, of this? Yes, she said slowly. That's why having a son helps. One is only a link in a chain, he said. Connie was not keen on chains, but she said nothing. She was thinking of the curious impersonality of his desire for a son. I'm sorry we can't have a son, she said. He looked at her steadily with full pale blue eyes. It would almost be a good thing if you had a child by another man. If we brought it up at Rugby, it would belong to us, and to the place. I don't believe very intensely in fatherhood. If we had the child to rear, it would be our own, and it would carry on. Don't you think it's worth considering? Connie looked up at him at last. The child, her child, was just an it to him. It, it, it. But what about the other man, she asked. Does it matter very much? Do these things really affect us very deeply? You had that lover in Germany. What is it now? Nothing almost. It seems to me it isn't these little acts and little connections we make in our lives that matter so very much. They pass away. And where are they? Where? Where are the snows of yesteryear? It's what endures through one's life that matters. My own life matters to me in its long continuance and development. But what do the occasional connections matter and the occasional sexual connections especially. If people don't exaggerate them ridiculously, they pass like the mating of birds, and so they should. What does it matter? It's the lifelong companionship that matters. 
the living together from day to day, not the sleeping together once or twice. You and I are married, no matter what happens to us. We have the habit of each other, and habit, to my thinking, is more vital than any occasional excitement, the long, slow, enduring thing. That's what we live by, not the occasional spasm of any sort. Little by little, living together, two people fall into a sort of unison. They vibrate so intricately to one another. That's the real secret of marriage, not sex, at least not the simple function of sex. You and I are interwoven in a marriage. If we stick to that, we ought to be able to arrange this sex thing, as we arrange going to the dentist, since fate has given us a checkmate physically there. <laughs> Connie sat and listened in a sort of wonder and a sort of fear. She did not know if he was right or not. There was Michaelis, whom she loved, so she said to herself. But her love was somehow only an excursion from her marriage with Clifford, the long, slow habit of intimacy formed through years of suffering and patience. Perhaps the human soul needs excursions and must, must not be denied them. But the point of an excursion is you want to come home again. And wouldn't you mind what, man's child I had? she asked. Why, Connie, I should trust your natural instinct of decency and selection. You just wouldn't let the wrong sort of fellow touch you. She thought of Michaelis. He was absolutely Clifford's idea of the wrong sort of fellow. But men and women may have different feelings about the wrong sort of fellow, she said. No, he replied, you care for me. I don't believe you would ever care for a man who was purely antipathetic to me. Your rhythm wouldn't let you. She was silent. Logic might be unanswerable because it was so absolutely wrong. And should you expect me to tell you? She asked, glancing up at him almost furtively. Not at all. I'd better not know. But you do agree with me, don't you? That the casual sex thing is nothing compared to the long life lived together. Don't you think one can just subordinate the sex thing to the necessities of a long life? Just use it, since that's what we're driven to. After all, do these temporary excitements matter? Isn't the whole problem of life the slow building up of an integral personality through the years, living an in integrated life? There's no point in a disintegrated life. If lack of sex is going to disintegrate you, then go out and have a love affair. If a lack of a child is going to disintegrate you, then have a child if you possibly can. But only do these things that you have an integrated life that makes a long harmonious thing. And you and I can do that together, don't you think? If we adapt ourselves to the necessities and at the same time weave the adaptation together into a peace with our steadily lived life. Don't you agree? Connie was a little overwhelmed by his words. She knew he was right theoretically, but when she actually touched her steadily live life with him, with, uh, with him, she hesitated. Was it actually her destiny to go weaving herself into his life all the rest of her life, nothing else? Was it just that? Was she just content to weave a steady life with him, all one fabric, but perhaps brocaded with the occasional flower of an adventure? But how could she know what she would feel next year? How could one ever know? How could one say yes for years and years? The little yes gone on a breath. Why should, why should one be pinned down by that butterfly word? Of course it had to flutter away and be gone, to be followed by other yeses and noes, like the straying of butterflies. I think you're right, Clifford, and as far as I can see, I agree with you. Only life may turn quite a new face on it all. But until life turns a new face on it all, do you agree? Oh yes, I think I do, really. She was watching a brown spaniel that had run out of the side path and was looking towards them with a lift nose. 
making a soft, fluffy bark. A man with a gun strode swiftly, softly after the dog, facing their way as if was about to attack them, then stopped instead, instead saluted, and was turning downhill. It was only the new gamekeeper, but he had frightened Connie. He seemed to emerge with such a swift menace. That was how she had seen him, like the sudden rush of a threat out of nowhere. He was a man in dark green velveteens and gaiters, the old style, with a red face and a red moustache and a distant eyes. He was going quickly downhill. Mellors, called Clifford, the man faced lightly round and saluted with a quick little gesture, a soldier. Will you turn the chair round and get it started? That makes it easier, said Clifford. The man at once slung his gun over his shoulder and came forward with the same curious swift yet soft movements, as if keeping invisible. He was moderately tall and lean and was silent. He didn't he did not look at Connie at all, only at the chair. Connie, this is the new gamekeeper, Mellors. You haven't spoken to her ladyship yet, Mellors. No, sir, came the ready neutral words. The man lifted his hat as he stood, showing his thick almost hair facial sorry almost fair hair. He stared straight into Connie's eyes with a perfect, fearless, impersonal look, as if he wanted to see what she was like. He made her feel shy. She bent her head to him shyly, and and he changed his hat to his left hand and made a slight bow, like a gentleman, but he said nothing at all. He remained for a moment still, with his hat in his hands. But you've been here some time, haven't you? Connie said to him. Eight months, madam. Your ladyship, he corrected himself calmly. And do you like it? She looked him in the eyes. His eyes narrowed a little, with irony perhaps. With irony, perhaps with impudence. Why, yes, thank you, your ladyship. I was reared here. He gave another slight bow, turned, put on, put his hat on, and strove to take hold of the chair. His voice on the last words had fallen into a heavy, broad drag of the dialect perhaps also in mockery, because there had been no trace of a dialect before. He might almost be a gentleman, anyhow. He was a curious, quick, separate fellow, alone, but sure of himself. Clifford started the little engine. The man carefully turned the chair and set it nose forwards to the incline that curved gently to the dark hazel thicket. Is that all then, Sir Clifford? asked the man. No, you'd better come along in case she sticks. The engine isn't really strong enough for the uphill work. The man glanced round for his dog, a thoughtful glance. The spaniel looked at him and faintly moved its tail. A little smile, mocking or teasing her, yet gentle, came into his eyes for a moment, then faded away, and his face was expressionless. They were fairly quickly down the slope, the man with his hand on the rail of the chair, steadying it. He looked like a free soldier rather than a servant and something about him reminded Connie of Tommy Dukes. When they came to the hazel grove, Connie suddenly ran forward and opened the gate into the park. As she stood holding it, the two men looked at her in passing. Clifford critically, the other man with a curious, cool wonder, impersonally wanting to see what she looked like. And she saw, in his blue impersonal eyes, a look of suffering and detachment, yet a certain warmth. But why was he so aloof, apart? Clifford stopped the chair once through the gate, and the man came quickly, courteously to close it. Why did you run to open? asked Clifford in his quiet, calm voice, that showed he was displeased. Mellors would have done it. I thought you'd go straight ahead, said Connie, and leave you to run after us, said Clifford. 
Oh, well, I like to run sometimes. Mellis took the chair again, looking perfectly unheeding. Yet Connie felt he noted everything. As he pushed the chair up the steepish rise of the knoll in the park, he breathed rather quickly through parted lips. He was, he was rather frail, really, curiously full of vitality, but a little frail when quenched. Her woman's instinct sensed it. Connie fell back, let the chair go. The day had greyed over. The small blue sky that had poised low on its circular rims of haze was closed in again. The lid was down. There was a raw coldness. It was going to snow. All grey, all grey. The world looked worn out. The chair waited at the top of the pink path. Clifford looked round for Connie. Not tired, are you, he said. Oh, no, she said. But she was. A strange, weary yearning. A, dis a dissatisfaction with oh God, a dissatisfaction <laughs> had started in her. Mm. Clifford did not notice. Those were not <sighs> things he was aware of, but the stranger knew. To Connie, everything in her world and life seemed worn out and her dissatisfaction was older than the hills. They came to the house and around to the back where there were no steps. Clifford managed to swing himself over onto the low, wheeled house chair he was very strong and agile with his arms. Then Connie lifted the burden of his dead legs after him. <clears throat> the keeper waited attention to be dismissed, watched everything narrowly, missing nothing. He went pale with a sort of fear when he saw Connie lifting the inert legs of the man in her arms into the other chair. Clifford pivoted round as he did so. He was frightened. Thanks then for the help, Mellors, said Clifford casually as he began to wheel down the passage to the servants' quarters. Nothing else, sir, came the neutral voice, like one in a dream. Nothing. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Good morning. It was the kind of it was kind of you to push the chair up that hill. I hope it wasn't heavy for you, said Connie, looking back at the keeper outside the door. His eyes came to, came to her in an instant, as if wakened up. He was aware of her. Oh no, not heavy, he said quickly. Then his voice dropped again into the broad sound of the vernacular. Good morning to your ladyship. Who is your gamekeeper? Connie asked at lunch. Mellors, you saw him, said Clifford. Yes, but where did he come from? Nowhere. He was the Tevishal boy, son of a collier, I believe. And was he a collier himself? Blacksmith on the pit bank, I believe, overheard Smith. But he was keeper here for two years before the war, before he joined up. My father always had a good opinion of him. So when he came back and when he went to the pit for a blacksmith's job, I just took him back here as a keeper. I was really very glad to get him. It's almost impossible to find a good man round here for a gameskeeper, and it needs a man who knows the people. And he isn't married. He was, but his wife went off with, with various men, but finally with a collier at Stack's Gate, and I believe she's living there still. So this man is alone? More or less. He has a mother in the village, and a child, I believe. Clifford looked at Connie with his pale, slightly prominent blue eyes, in which a certain vagueness was coming. He seemed alert in the foreground, but the background was like the Midlands atmosphere, haze, smoky mist, and the haze seemed to be creeping forward. So when he stared, stared at Connie in his peculiar way, giving her his peculiar precise information, she felt all the background of his mind filling up with mist and nothingness, and it frightened her. It made him seem impersonal, almost to idiocy. And dimly she realised one of the great laws of the human soul, that when the emotion 
emotional soul receives a wounding shock, which does not kill the body, the soul seems to recover as the body recovers. But this is only appearance. It is really only the mechanism of the reassumed habit. Slowly, slowly the wound to the soul begins to make itself felt, like a bruise, which only slowly deepens in its terrible ache, till it fills all the psyche. And when we think we have recovered and forgotten, it is then that the terrible after-effects have to be accounted at their worst. So it was with Clifford. Once he was well, once he was back at Ragby and writing his stories and feeling sure of life in spite of all, he seemed to forget and to have recovered from his equanimity. But now, as the years went by slowly, slowly, Connie felt the bruise of fear and horror coming up and spreading in him. For a time it had been so deep as to be numb, as it were non-existent. Now slowly it began to assert itself in a spread of fear, almost paralysis. Mentally he was still alert, but the paralysis, the bruise of the too great shock, was gradually spreading in his effective self. And as it spread in him, Connie felt it spread in her, an inward dread, an emptiness, an indifference to everything gradually spread in her soul. When Clifford was roused, he would still talk brilliantly, and as it were, command the future, as when in the wood he talked about having her, having a child and giving an heir to Ragby. But the day after, all the brilliant words seemed like dead leaves, crumpling up and turning to powder, meaning really nothing, blown away on any gust of wind. They were not the leafy words of an effective life, young with energy and belonging to the tree. They were the hosts of fallen leaves of a life that is ineffectual. So it seemed to her everywhere, the colliers at Tebershall were taking again, talking again of a strike. And it seemed to Connie, there again, it was not a manifestation of energy, it was the bruise of the war that, that had been in abeyance, slowly rising to the surface and creating the great ache of unrest and stupor of discontent. The bruise was deep, 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 the bruise of the false inhumane war. It would take many years for the living blood of the generations to dissolve the, the vast black clot of bruised blood deep inside their souls and bodies, and it would need a new hope. Poor Connie. As the years drew on, it was the fear of nothingness in her life that affected her. Clifford's mental life and hers gradually began to feel like nothingness. Their marriage, their integrated life, mm. based on a habit of intimacy that he talked about. There were days where it all became utterly blank and nothing. It was words, just so many words. The only reality was nothingness. It was over a hypocrisy of words. There was Clifford's success, the bitch goddess. It was true, he was almost famous, and his books brought him in a thousand pounds. His photograph appeared everywhere. There was a bust of him in one of the galleries, and a portrait of him in two galleries. He seemed the most modern of modern voices. With his uncanny lame instinct for publicity, he'd become, in four or five years, one of the best known of one of the young intellectuals. Where the intellect came in, Connie did not quite see. Clifford was really clever, and at that slightly humorous analysis of people and motives, which leaves everything in bits at the end. But it was rather like puppies tearing the sofa cushions to bits, except that it was not young and playful, but curiously old and rather obstinately conceited. It was weird and it was nothing. This was the feeling that echoed and re-echoed at the bottom of Connie's soul. It was all flag, 
a wonderful display of nothingness. At the same time, a display, a display, a display, a display. Michaelis had seized upon Clifford as the central figure for a play. Already he had sketched in the plot and written the first act. For Michaelis was even better than Clifford at making a display of nothingness. It was the last bit of passion left in these men, the passion for making a display. Sexually, they were passionless, even dead. And now it was not money that Michaelis was after. Clifford had never been primarily out for money. But he made it when he could, for money is the seal and stamp of success. And success was what they wanted. They wanted both of them to make a real display. A man owned a very display of himself. It should capture for a time the vast populace. It was strange, the prostitution to the bitch goddess. To Connie, since she was really outside of it, and since she had grown numb to the thrill of it, it was again nothingness. Even the prostitution to the bitch goddess was nothingness, though the men prostituted themselves innumerable times. Nothingness, even that. Michaelis wrote to Clifford about the play. Of course she knew about it long ago, and Clifford was again thrilled. He was going to be displayed again this time. Somebody was going to display him, and to advantage. He invited Michaelis down to Rugby with Act One. Michaelis came in summer in a pale-coloured suit and white suede gloves, with mauve orchids for Connie. Very lovely, and Act One was a great mm. success. Even Connie was thrilled. Thrilled to what bit of marrow she had left, and Michaelis, thrilled by his power to thrill, was really wonderful and quite beautiful in Connie's eyes. She saw in him that ancient motionless of a race that can't be disillusioned anymore, an extreme, perhaps, of impurity that is pure. On the far side of his supreme prostitution to the bitch goddess that he seemed pure, pure as an African ivory mask that dreams impurity into purity in its ivory curves and planes. His moment of sheer thrill with the two Chatterleys, where he simply carried Connie and Clifford away, was one of the supreme moments of Michaelis's life. He succeeded. He had carried them away. Even Clifford was temporarily in love with him. That is the way one can put it. So the next morning, Mick was more uneasy than ever, restless, devoured, with his hands restless in his trousers, trouser pockets. Connie had not visited him in the night, and he had not known where to find her. Coquetry? <laughs> At his moment of triumph, he went up to her sitting room in the morning. She knew he would come, and his restlessness was evident. He asked her about his play. She did, did she think it was good? He had to hear it praised. That affected him with the last thin thrill of passion beyond any sexual orgasm. And she praised it rapturously. Yet all the while, at the bottom of her soul, she knew it was nothing. Look here, he said suddenly at last. Why don't you and I make a clean thing of it? Why don't we marry? But I am married, she said, amazed, and yet feeling nothing. Oh, that, he'll divorce you all right. Why don't you and I marry? I want to marry. I know it would be the best thing for me, marry and lead a regular life. I lead the juice of, juice of a life, simply tearing myself to pieces. Look here, you and I were made for one another, hand and glove. Why don't we marry? Do you see any reason why we shouldn't? Connie looked at him amazed, and yet she felt nothing. These men, they were all alike. They left everything out. It just went from the top of their heads as if they were squibs and expected you to be carried heavenwards along with their own thin sticks. But I'm married already, she said. I can't leave Clifford, you know. Why not? But why not? He'll hardly know you've gone. After six months, 
He doesn't know that anybody exists except himself. Why, the man has no use for you at all. As far as I can see, he's entirely wrapped up in himself. Connie felt there was a truth in this, but she also felt that Mick was hardly making a display of selflessness. Aren't all men wrapped up in themselves, she asked. Oh, more or less, I allow. A man's got to be to get through, but that's not the point. The point is, what sort of time can a man give a woman? Can he give her a damn good time, or can't he? If he can't, he's no right to, to the woman. He paused and gazed at her with his full hazel eyes, almost hypnotic. Now I consider, he said, I can give a woman the darndest good time she can ask for. I think I can guarantee it myself. And what sort of good time? asked Connie, gazing on, gazing on him with still sort of amazement. That looked like the thrill, and underneath feeling nothing at all. Every sort of good time, damn it, every sort. Dress, jewels up to a point, any nightclub you like, know anybody you want to know. Live the pace, travel and be somebody wherever you go. Darn it, every sort of good time. He spoke it almost in a brilliancy of triumph, and Connie looked at him as if dazzled and really feeling nothing at all. Hardly even the surface of her mind was tickled at the glowing prospects he offered her. Hardly even her most outside self responded. At any other time would he have been thrilled. She just got no feeling from it. She couldn't go off. She sat and stared and looked dazzled and felt nothing. Only somewhere she smelt the extraordinary unpleasant smell of the bitch goddess. Mick sat on tenderhooks, leaning forward in his chair, glaring at her almost hysterically. And whether he was more anxious out of vanity for her to say yes, or whether he was more panic-stricken for fear she should say yes, who can tell? I should have to think about it. I couldn't say now. It may seem to you Clifford doesn't count, but he does. When you think how disabled he is. Oh, damn it all. If a fellow's going to trade on his disabilities, I might as well say how lonely I am, and always have been, and all the rest of me and my, me, me and my Betty Martin snob stuff. Damn it all, if a fellow's got nothing but disabilities to recommend him. He turned aside, working his hands furiously in his trousers pockets. That evening, he said to her, you're coming round to my room tonight, aren't you? I don't darn know where your room is. All right, she said. He was a more excited lover that night, with his strange, small boy, frail nakedness. Connie found it impossible to come to her crisis before he had really finished his and he roused a certain craving passion in her. With his little boy's nakedness, nakedness and softness, she had to go on after he had finished, in the wild tumult and heaving of her loins, or he heroically kept himself up and present in her, with all his will and self-offering, till she brought about her own crisis, with weird little cries. When at last he drew away from her, he said in a bitter, almost sneering little voice, You couldn't go off it the same time as a man could you you'd have to bring yourself off you'd have to run the show this little speech at the moment was one of the shocks of her life because that passive sort of giving mm. himself was so obviously his only real mode of intercourse what do you mean she said you know what i mean you keep on for hours after i've gone off and i have to hang on with my teeth till you bring yourself off by your own exertions she was stunned by this unexpected piece of brutality at the moment when she was glowing with a sort of pleasure beyond words and a sort of love for him. Because after all, like so many modern men, 
he was finished almost before he had begun. And that forced the woman to be active. But you want me to go on to get my own satisfaction, she said. <laughs> he laughed grimly. I want it, he said. That's good. I want to hang on with my teeth, teeth clenched while you go on for me. But don't you, she insisted. He, invo he avoided the question. All the darn women are like that, he said. Either they don't go off at all, as if they were dead in there, or else they wait till a chap's really done, and then they start in, in to bring themselves off, and a chap's got to hang on. I never had a woman yet who went off just at the same moment as I did. Connie only half-hearted this piece of mm. novel masculine information. She was only stunned by his feeling against her, his incomprehensible brutality. She felt so innocent. But you want me to have satisfaction too, don't you? She repeated. Oh, all right, I'm quite willing. But I'm darned if I'm hanging on waiting for a woman to go off in is much of a game for a man. This speech was one of the crucial blows of Connie's life. It killed something in her. She had not been so very keen on Michaelis till he started it. She did not want him. It was as if she had never positively wanted him. But once he had started her, it seemed only natural for her to come to her own crisis with him. Almost she had loved him for it. Almost that night she loved him and wanted to marry him. Perhaps instinctively he knew it. And that was why he had to bring down the whole show with a smash, mm. the house of cards, her whole sexual feeling for him, or for any man collapsed that night. Her life fell apart from his as completely as if it had never existed. And she went through the days drearily. There was nothing now but this empty treadmill of what Clifford called the integrated life, the long living together of two people who are in the habit of being in the same house with one another. Nothingness, to accept the great nothingness of life, seemed to be the one end of living. All the many busy and important little things that make up the grand sum total of nothingness. <laughs>